Psalm 28 gives to us, it tells us another Psalm of David, and uh, the background on this, we're not exactly certain uh, what it was. There's nothing told us kind of in the prescript here, as some other Psalms do, but it seems that uh, David in this Psalm is indicating Uh, the importance and the value of speaking to the Lord and communicating with God, and certainly an important lesson for all of us to learn the great value of ongoing communication with God. We'll see as we get to Psalm 29, there we kind of get the other side of communication with God, which is God speaking to us and God hearing our voice. But in Psalm 28, you can tell David is greatly concerned that God would hear his voice, uh, his plea or cry and the things that he wanted to speak to God about, that that was very important. And again, kind of emphasizing to us once again the, the great value of prayer. And David certainly was one of those men we see in Scripture that was not only a man after God's own heart, but a man who, because of that, really had a deep relationship with God as far as communication to him and very genuine and sincere communication. You read David's Psalms that he writes, and it's very obvious that he just spoke in a very raw and sincere and just realistic way. I mean, you don't sense him kind of covering things up or praying just religious platitudes, but David just speaks very raw and direct with God. And I think that's why we kind of like the Psalms because we can relate to them a lot of times, all the different ranges of emotions and experiences that David felt as a man and that we experience as human beings as well. So he begins this Psalm here, Psalm 28, by saying, to you I will cry, O Lord, my rock, do not be silent to me, lest, he says, if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your sanctuary. So as we've been seeing through the book of Psalms, which again is a poetic book. You can tell again Hebrew poetry, a lot of it isn't like what we envision when we think of poetry, you know, rhyming phrases, but instead it's about uh, contrasting thoughts or comparison thoughts, sometimes parallel thoughts. It's almost like sometimes you read the Psalms or you read the a book of Proverbs, and it almost sounds like the uh, writer or the one who's speaking to some degree, you almost say you're being repetitious. Why are you saying things two or three times just different ways? Well, that was how Hebrew poetry was written. A lot of times they would convey a thought, and then they would convey a contrasting thought as a way of comparison right next to it, or sometimes parallelism, what they would also do is they would convey a thought And then they would basically say almost the exact same thing again, repetitiously restating the exact same thing, only maybe just in a little different phrasing uh, or just a little different manner. They would, for emphasis, communicate the same thing again. And they realized that this was a great way for people to learn because, again, that old adage, what's one of the best ways to learn? Repetition, 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 right? So whether it's sports, whether it's learning how to do math, problems uh, in different ways of doing math or whatever it may be, same thing spiritually with learning uh, and even God's word, something very valuable about repetition. And so when David here communicates, you find him doing that. In these first few verses, you see him repeatedly making similar statements. God, I'm crying to you with the voice of my supplications. I cry out to you. Again, he's continuing to emphasize this idea. And notice the word cry implies a real sense of desperation or passion, right? When when somebody says, I am crying out, 
Uh, that's not just kind of common communication. The indication when somebody says, God, I'm crying out to you, it's a sense that I'm in real need. I'm crying out to you, Lord. I'm begging you, the idea is here. And sometimes that's where our uh, communication with God goes to. Sometimes it's just general, ordinary conversation. And there are other times where we find ourselves maybe in a situation or maybe it's just in a certain condition that we find ourselves in internally where the intensity level is kind of cranked up a few decibels. And we're saying, Lord, I'm crying out to you. I'm desperate here, Lord, please. I'm begging you, God, hear me in regards to this thing that's concerning me. So he says to you, I will cry. And again, I appreciate David's wisdom. He always shows when you're in desperation or you have a deep need, David understands where's the best place to cry out that your plea would get heard. It's not protesting on the streets. It's not crying out to some other human being that may be able to help in some way, but it's going to an all-sufficient God who has no limitation in his power and resources and saying, look, if I've got something I got to cry out to somebody about for help, I'm going to cry out, he says, unto you. To you, God, he says, Oh, Lord, my God, he says, I will cry. And notice he refers to God here, as we've seen before. Again, he refers to God as my rock. And again, for David, many of this, remember, was picturesque. He lived among the landscape of Israel. And if you've ever gone to Israel, uh, if you haven't, I certainly encourage you to do that. Or if you've ever just watched videos or seen pictures, the land of Israel is filled with rocks. It's a very stony, rocky territory and so, again, that's why even when we read earlier back in the days of Solomon and his life, when the Bible says that Solomon made silver in the land more common than rocks, that was the idea. It's like, wow, that's a lot of silver he's accumulated because the land of Israel is filled with rocks. But again, what is a rock? It's, it's something that's hard. It's something used for foundation. And so this is the idea. God, you are my stabilizing factor you are solid you're a solid rock you're immovable this is the idea as he talks about god as his rock the bible refers to god as our the rock of ages and again i love this picture of god that he's like a steady strong stable immovable rock uh, a lot of times we're not like that so aren't you glad that god is a rock because we're kind of rocky <laughs> if you understand he's kind of the opposite of that no pun intended we kind of tend to go like this as human beings uh, but, but God is a stable, solid rock, and we can build our lives upon him, and that helps us in many ways, even just, I think, at times to manage our emotions and thoughts and what's going on in our lives. We can build our life upon that rock and, and look to him as our rock and our stabilizing factor. So he says, God, I'm going to cry out to you because you're my rock. And notice he says repeatedly in these first few verses as well, Lord, please don't be silent to me. In other words, he's saying, God, please, you have to answer Lord, Lord, I need to hear an answer from you. Have you ever found yourself like that in prayer before? Lord, I, I need to hear an answer from you. I need you to speak to me, God. Please don't be silent. God, I need to hear something from you. I need to hear your word on this matter or your direction. He says, Lord, if you don't speak, then he says, verse uh, one there, he says, I'm gonna become like those who go down to the pit and the idea of going down to the pit is someone in, down in the pit, they're hopeless. There's no way of getting out of the pit. There's no ladder in the pit. You would just get tossed down in the pit. Many times that's where prisoners would go. And the idea is they dig a deep enough pit. You throw them down in the pit. 
He's not getting out of the pit. You don't need concrete bars. You don't need jail cells. You don't have to charge the taxpayers to keep people alive. You just throw them in a pit. (laughs) And they're stuck in the pit, and they can't get out of the pit. The idea is it's a picture of complete darkness and hopelessness and no way of escape or changing your situation. And typically, those in a pit who are thrown there, a lot of times were thrown in a pit because they were destined to die. And so David's saying, God, I'm crying out to you because if I don't hear from you, Lord, if you don't speak to me and you don't, you don't let me hear your answer in this matter, I need to hear a word from you. He says, Lord, then I'm just completely hopeless then. I, I'm going to be like someone destined to die. I just, there's nothing I'm going to do. I, I, I'm ruined, Lord, if I don't hear from you. That's the idea he's saying. And I think sometimes we can all relate to that. So he says, Lord, please hear the voice of my supplications. Again, notice when I cry to you. And then he says, verse two, when I lift up my hands, toward your holy sanctuary. And again, the holy sanctuary was the place where, where God's presence dwelt. So he's speaking of approaching God. And you notice how David uses this picture again here uh, of engaging, notice not just in his mind, in his heart, but even physically with his body. He's, he's referring to prayer here, not worship in the sense of singing praise songs. He'll talk about that in these Psalms as well, about singing and using music and singing to the Lord. But here he's specifically talking about communication through prayer. And he references praying while, notice, lifting up my hands to the Lord. And the idea of lifting up one's hands was to engage yourself in such a way where, in a sense, when you're holding out your hand, you're saying, Lord, I'm expecting something from you. And I'm empty-handed. God, see my hands? Nothing in them. I'm bringing nothing to the table here, Lord. I'm empty-handed, and unless you act by your power, you send your provision, Lord, here I am empty-handed, but I'm lifting up my hands towards you because the idea is when you hold your hand out someone, you're holding out your hand in the sense of expectation. God, I'm expectant that you're going to, to give to me that which I need, and so, Lord, I'm dependent upon you in surrender and and lifting my hands up to you. I'm, I'm trusting that you're going to come through, he's saying. And I think that's kind of a beautiful thing. And sometimes, you know, I'd encourage you, uh, you know, the Bible speaks of many different postures for our physical body in prayer. The Bible speaks of kneeling. The Bible speaks of, you know, walking. Jesus, it says, walked and had his eyes open, looked up to heaven and was talking to God out loud. And, uh, and, and in the scriptures, we see lifting hands to the Lord. And I think there's something about that. Again, God cares more about the position of our heart than he does our body, because you can be on your knees praying prayers to want to feel or appear spiritual, and your heart can be completely disconnected from God, or your heart can be completely stubborn. You know, it's that old adage of, you know, the kid that's being rebellious and the parent says, well, you sit down, you sit right there and you are not getting up until I tell you you can get up. And they exercise their parental authority and the stubborn little rebellious kid says, well, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, right? And, and, and our hearts can be in two different places than what our body maybe, it doesn't always line up perfectly. God cares more about the condition of our heart. But I think one of the reasons God's word talks to us about lifting our hands, maybe going on our knees at times, praying in different ways, is because sometimes that helps us engage a little bit. I don't know about you, but whether it's singing or whether it's praying, sometimes there's something about that. It helps keep us engaged mentally and makes us really recognize maybe where our heart should be at or to acknowledge where we want our heart to be at. Or again, same thing with being on our knees. There's something very healthy periodically I found in my Christian walk about, you know, on occasion, just getting on my knees before the Lord. 
and humbling myself before him as a king and, and being willing to acknowledge, you know, who I am in his presence. And so great advice. David here says, Lord, I'm in desperation. I'm lifting my hands toward you and your holy sanctuary where your presence is at. He says, verse three, do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors. So notice the characterization here the Holy Spirit gives of wicked people. They speak peace to their neighbors. So they polish up their speech. They speak in a peaceful way, act like they care about their neighbor's interests, but evil is in their hearts. So, so they're people who, again, are, are hypocritical. They, they, they say one thing outwardly. They give the impression through their words that they have good intentions or concern about their neighbors or other people speaking peacefully. But he says, but in their heart, there's a complete wicked intention and agenda going on at the same time. So he says, therefore, Lord, what we sow, you tell us that we also reap. And so David applies this principle now, even in prayer. He says, Lord, verse four, give them according to their deeds, according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve. Now, you could look at David's prayer there and say, how could he possibly be praying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be praying like that? But really think about it. David's not necessarily being vindictive as much as he is just praying something that is a scriptural principle about the nature of God. God tells us in his word that what a man sows, right, he shall also reap. And God's very clear in his word, whether he's saying if you sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. If you, you, know, if, if you sow righteousness, you're going to reap good benefits from that and blessings. So it works both ways. And David here is basically saying in his frustration towards the wicked and those who were doing things that were hurtful and wicked. He speaks of those who were doing wickedness in their endeavors, those who, according to the work of their hands, were involved in evil deeds and, and, and David says, look, what they're doing is horrible and it's destructive and it's hurtful and it's, and it's completely wicked. So he says, God, would you just deal with them? Give them what they deserve, he says. He doesn't say, I'm going to give them what they deserve, right? That's the, that's the problem. We want to give them what they deserve. We want to step in and play God <laughs> and, and we want to deal with people when they do what's wrong. Well, look, the Bible says that God declares vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It, it's mine to repent. And one of the most wise things we can do is to just pray. Look, God's a just judge, right? He, he's a righteous God and a righteous king who has the power to do it. And if God judges, uh, nobody's going to dispute with him. Nobody's going to say, oh, that wasn't fair. Or, that wasn't tolerant. Or, no, he's God. You're not going to argue with God. God's completely just and righteous and holy in all of his judgments. So he says, God, just give them according to their deeds and according to their wicked endeavors, he says, Lord, I pray you would render to them what they deserve. Just, God, let them reap what they're sowing. Render to them what they deserve. And then he explains why, verse 5. He says, because they do not regard the works of the Lord. The idea is they don't care. They don't care about the works of the Lord, that which is good and brings life and help and blessing an eternal benefit to people. They, they have no regard or concern for any of the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands. The idea is they want to interfere with the hand of God is trying to do. And David says, boy, that's, that's not good when you're trying to hinder the hand of God. The operation of God's hand is 
to continue to accomplish what he wants to bring about. And so therefore, he says, because they don't regard the works of the Lord nor the operation of his hands, he shall destroy them and not build them up. In other words, God won't let them succeed, but will ultimately let what they're doing be dismantled and and fall apart because it's running in opposition to the hand of the Lord and what he's trying to accomplish in his works. He says then, verse 6, turning his attention back to the Lord, blessed be the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplication. So he enters into a moment of spontaneous praise. Now, isn't that interesting? Verses 1 and 2, David's clearly doing what? Crying out to the Lord, saying, God, please, God, I need you to listen. He's saying, God, I need to hear from you. I need to hear an answer. I need to hear you say something. I need to hear some word from you, God. And apparently, guess what happened? God answered, right? Because look what David says in verse six. Blessed be the Lord because he has what? Heard the voice of my supplications. So apparently, when we genuinely, like a child with a good and a loving father, cry out to God as our father, And our father is a mighty king. When we cry out to him and say, Lord, please, I need to hear something from you. He doesn't tune us out. He doesn't say, look, I'm too busy. I have other things going on. He listens and he answers and he acts on our behalf. And and we can celebrate. David here is just celebrating answered prayer. He says, blessed be the Lord. He's heard the voice of my supplications. In other words, he's saying, God, thank you for answering. And I bless you and praise you that you heard my prayer and you heeded it and you did something in response. Again, whether God spoke to David or God came through in some way, he's just celebrating answered prayer. And I think that's something many times that we probably tend to overlook a little bit in regards to our prayer lives and our personal lives. We ask a lot from God. We expect a lot from God. But a lot of times we fail to take the time, you know, to, to kind of, Lord, thank you that you heard our prayer. Thank you, Lord, for how you answered prayer in that situation. A lot of times we don't acknowledge the times when God does answer and act. And I think that's an area really for for all of us to try and endeavor to grow in. A lot of times we'll be quick to ask God for things. But, you know, by the grace of God, it'd be good to grow in that area where periodically, you know, we're celebrating, we're excited about something. And we realize, man, we prayed for that and look what God did and so on and so forth. You know, it'd be great to say, hey, let's have a prayer meeting and just thank God (laughs) for hearing our prayers about that. And let's just let's just take let's just wait here for a minute. Let's just pray for a minute or two, you and I, and let's just thank the Lord for what He did. He He answered our prayer. Remember, we were praying about that. And, and a lot of times we kind of tend to overlook that. We talk about it, but we don't often go to God and actually bless Him and thank Him personally for it. So David says, verse seven, regarding God, the Lord is my strength and my shield. So again, the Lord gives me power. And the Lord is also my protection, my shield. Notice he doesn't just say the Lord gives me strength, but he says the Lord is my strength. That's much better, right? It's one thing for God to give you strength. It's another thing when he actually is your strength because you're connected to him. That's why the Bible says in Isaiah 40, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like with wings of eagles and walk and, and, and not grow faint. And, and again, the picture there, those who wait upon the Lord, the Hebrew literally is those who, who intertwine their lives with the Lord end up receiving strength. That there's something about when our lives become intertwined with God, when we're depending upon God and we're walking and yielding in cooperation to God, that he not only 
gives us strength, but he actually becomes our strength. You know, what did Paul ultimately declare in Philippians when he was dealing with his difficulties of being in prison and still trying to find contentment in difficult times in his life? And, and Paul says, I've learned how to be content, right, in, in difficult things and, and in great times. I know how to abase. I know how to bound. And he says, you know, I, I've learned how to be content in both situations in life. When everything is going really great and, and I'm succeeding and, and things are blessed. And he says, I've also learned when it's when I'm lacking and it's really hard and things aren't good. I've learned to be content in both of those spots. And we can be discontent in either of those spots, right? Sometimes we can be discontent when we're in struggles or lacking and wishing that we had this or wishing things were like this instead. And other times we can be in a place where God's blessing and, and maybe things are going good. And we then struggle because we almost feel like bad or guilty because God's blessing. And we struggle with just being content with, man, the Lord's just really blessing right now. This is a great season and we can struggle in either. And Paul says, I've learned to be content in both. And then right in the midst of that, he says, for here's where I've learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, as Christ gives me his strength, as his strength is manifested in my life, that's what enables me to keep a right heart attitude in the way that I navigate whatever season or stage I'm in. And here, David, again, because of that closeness he had, the Lord, he says, is my strength. He's the one who is my power. I have no strength of my own. And he's also my shield. He's my protector. I can't shield myself. He's going to have to shield me. And I love what he says, verse 7 there. My heart trusted in him, he says, and I am helped, therefore my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise the Lord. I love David's language there. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. You know, isn't that so true, how that often tends to be the way? If our heart trusts in this, or our heart's trusting in ourselves, or our heart's trusting in another person, a lot of times we end up being brokenhearted, where our heart gets let down, right? A relationship doesn't go through the way we expected it to. And, but, you know, that's never going to happen with the Lord because he's incredibly faithful and he'll never leave us or forsake us. He's that constant solid rock, as David said. And he says, you know, my, it seems that David's heart was struggling because he speaks of being helped here. And he says, my heart was helped. He says, and he says, the way I was helped is my heart trusted in him. You know, if you're having heart trouble, uh, not in a uh, obviously biological sense, or even if you are, well, I guess that's important if you're having a heart problem in that way too. But if you're just having heart trouble generally, going, you know, trust in the Lord. Put your confidence in the Lord because he says here, that's what helped my heart. That's what helped my heart attitude. And so sometimes the thing that we need to help our heart attitude is we got to just trust in the Lord, give things over to him. And it's amazing how that can cause anxiety to diminish. diminish. It can cause depression to begin to you know, dissipate sometimes. And all the things that our heart gets all unsettled and concerned over, it's amazing how the peace of God can come in and guard our heart and mind when we trust in the Lord in that way. And he says, so therefore my heart greatly rejoices. Notice David's completely turned around just by the end of this psalm. And he says, and therefore with my song, now he's talking about singing, in that aspect of worship, with my song, I will praise him. And again, notice the conscious decision David's making. He's using terms of the will. Has nothing to do with feelings. Has nothing to do with interest. Has even nothing to do with whether he enjoyed it or not. He just simply says, with my song, I will praise him. 
He's going to say in the next Psalm, he's worthy of our praise. He deserves our praise. So he says, therefore, I will praise him in light of who he is and what he's done for me. He said he's deserving of it. So the way that David said that I'll do it, he says, is with my song. That is by using a song to give praise that's properly due to the Lord. He says, verse eight, the Lord is their strength. His eyes go now to the broader community and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. And then he intercedes on behalf of others now that he's worked through his own struggles within. He says, save your people, Lord, and bless your inheritance. And then he says, shepherd them also and bear them up forever. So God, what you've done for me, he says, like a good shepherd, I pray you'd shepherd the others in the flock who may be struggling or dealing with their own challenges. Lord, do the same as you shepherd and bear them up forever in the midst of what they're going through. Psalm 29, the shift now becomes upon communication, but God's communication. That is, you know, hearing God speak rather than us per se speaking to God and crying out to him. He says, beginning in Psalm 29, give unto the Lord. O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let's read down through this. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. For the Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and he sits as king forever, and the Lord will give strength to his people and will bless his people with peace. So David here puts forth a call in a responsive way, again, to to give honor to the Lord, to be able to give praise and thanksgiving to him because of how powerfully his voice speaks into our lives and has incredible influence when he communicates to us in some way. So the first two verses are really the exhortation responsively to what the remainder of the psalm speaks about, the power and the greatness of the Lord's voice. And notice what our response should be in light of what verses 3 through 11 will describe for us. He says, notice, three times, give unto the Lord, verse 1. Again, give unto the Lord, verse 2. Give unto the Lord. Three times he says what we should do is give something unto the Lord. And notice he doesn't say give unto the Lord your money. He doesn't say give unto the Lord. A, but he says give unto the Lord. What's he talking about? Glory. He's, he says right there in verse one, give unto the Lord the glory due his name, verse 1 and 2, he says, the glory and strength. And then verse 2, give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Again, I have that underlined, the glory due his name. Th- that is, God is owed glory. Revelation chapter 4 literally says to us that we were actually created purposely for the glory of God. That is part of what our existence is 
As people, we're made in the image and likeness of God, and the primary purpose for your human existence, if you haven't began to figure it out yet, is really one thing. It is to live in such a way whereby your life gives glory unto God as your creator, and then ultimately, hopefully, as you recognize him as your savior and your Lord. And, and, and quite honestly, to the degree that we recognize that and we live in relationship to that, we find some sense of human fulfillment while on this difficult earth. You know, so many people are miserable, unfulfilled, struggling with suicidal tendencies, trying to drink away their sorrows or use substances, whether it's prescription pills or, you know, illegal drugs or whatever, trying to just kind of check out mentally or even just, you know, completely give up on life altogether. And a lot of that has to do with is that they're simply just not aware of or not living in cooperation with the primary purpose they exist, which is to glorify God is to let your life, which was given to you by God, which is unique and specific and has an incredible plan and purpose, to let it be fully God's and to just yield it to him and to seek to use your life to serve God and his purposes and therefore bring glory to him in whatever way he directs you. Again, Paul says, whatever we eat or drink, that we just do all to the glory of God. Again, it's not just this or that. It's just everything I do, Lord, ultimately, that it would bring glory to you and everything that I'm interacting in and involved in with my life. And the Bible says here that that glory under the Lord, that, that honor, he says, it's actually something that he's owed. We owe it to him. When he says there, it's due his name, that's the idea, right? If you have a mortgage payment that is due every month, right, that's something you owe. You're a debtor. And you should pay what is due to the person to whom it's owed. You know, there, there's a, a bill that's due. And, and this is the idea here is that God is owed something from us. And what God is owed from us is glory that we would give to him honor in our lives by the way that we render it to him. So he says, this is something that's due to him. And so he says, verse two, therefore, in light of that, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, it's not the beauty of our holiness, right? Because we're not very holy, the idea there is, again, we're talking about the glory due his name because of the beauty of the, the implication there is of his holiness, that, that he is so wonderful and pure and wholesome and all that he is in his person, everything about God should be the thing that causes us to worship him because we see the beauty of how incredible he is as our God and as our Lord. Remember, we saw last time David say in Psalm 27 he said there, Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I've desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He said there, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Again, I just want to be in the house of God. One of the reasons he says I want to be there is I just want to behold. I want to look at and think upon and consider how beautiful God is in the midst of such an ugly world in the midst of such a ugly heart that I have, or in the midst of all the ugliness and what's defiled, there's something pure. There's something good and wholesome and righteous and valuable and worthy to be cherished and, and honored. And he says, man, th there's something therapeutic about that for us, but more, it's something that we owe it to God because of the beauty of his holiness that we would worship him and again, our heart should be inspired to do that as people, 
not just because we're commanded to, but when we really consider who God is, it, it, you should find your heart being prompted to worship. S- something is, is running amiss in your spiritual life if you feel no inclination to worship. You know, we always told our, our daughters over the years when they were you know, starting to come of dating age or whatever, if they'd express interest in a Christian guy, one of the first questions we ask them a lot of times is, does he sing at church? Does he sing at church? Yeah. Does he worship? Is he a worshiper? Does he love God? Does he want to worship God? Is his heart inclined towards God? Does he want to worship? Or is he, or, or is he a, a Christian in name who, you know, he's too cool to worship in church, man. Does he worship? Because if your heart is inclined towards the Lord, you're going to want to express devotion and love and honor towards him. Look, in the same way, why do you think that guy's pursuing you as a beautiful young girl, right? There's passion driving him because you are so beautiful. Well, if somebody thinks God's beautiful, there's going to be a passion, the desire to worship him and to express that towards him. So that should be a very real experience in our lives as God's people and David says one of the reasons for that, only one of the many beautiful things about God, is the power of when God communicates. And that's what verses 3 through 11 are referring to. He says, notice, the voice of the Lord. And as I read down through that, I hope you took notice again of the repetition, purposeful repetition by the Holy Spirit. The voice of the Lord, that, that statement's there seven times. The voice of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit wants us to take notice. Look, this is something important. The voice of the Lord. Are you hearing the voice of the Lord? Are you interested in hearing the voice of the Lord? Have you experienced or are you experiencing hearing the voice of the Lord? There's a lot of voices, right? I don't know about you. I can't speak for you, but I know in this head, there are a lot of voices goes on in there every day. And, and, and part of my day is trying to sort out which one is which. There's a lot of voices. But what, what we want to hear is the voice of the Lord, because that is one of the most powerful experiences that a human being that's been created by God and for the Lord can experience in their life. So he says, verse three, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The idea there is over in the sense of rulership, complete control and power over now. We live in an area where we're very close to the ocean. You just go out in the ocean on some of those rough days, right? The currents, the strength of those waves, and, and that's nothing, even in comparison to how strong the waters that cover the earth are. I remember the first time years ago, I believe it was our 10-year anniversary, uh, Trish and I, for our 10-year anniversary, went on a cruise, and, and I'm not one for going on boats. I get motion sick real easy or whatever, and I saw the size of this cruise boat, and I'm like, oh, that thing's huge, man. That's like a city block long. I was shocked how when we got out into the middle of the water, I felt like I was on a little tiny canoe. When the power of the ocean moved something that large, and it makes you realize how strong, right, the, the waves and the bodies of water, the ocean currents and these things are. And, and here, this is the idea of trying to draw a comparison. He says, the voice of the Lord rules over those things can just speak to those ways. The Bible says that God speaks to the waters and tells them where their boundaries and their limits are. Again, as the waters come up to the shore, God says, that's it right there. Stop, you cannot go no further. I see it right there. Tommy built a sandcastle. Don't, don't you ruin that. Spare that. 
And, and God controls all that. Remember Jesus when he goes to appear before his disciples on one occasion when they're out in the midst of the storm as well as a couple times when he was with them in the storm? What would Jesus do? He would just speak to the waters and they would just, the waves, the raging storms would just go calm. And the disciples, many of them who were fishermen and had seen in these horrific storms before these kind of things, they would be shocked. Remember, they would say, who is this? That the winds and the waves obey him. That all he had to do was just speak peace, be muzzled, and they would just go completely silent and still. So again, the idea here is the power of God's voice. He can command what's strong and mighty in creation that we have no control over. He can just speak and take complete control over any situation or power. The God of glory thunders. He says, the Lord is over many waters. Again, verse four, he just says it directly now. For his picturesque verse, he's being poetic. Now he just says it specifically. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Being full of majesty speaks of coming from a throne. That's the idea of like a king. When a king speaks, a king is full of majesty. And when he speaks, it's authoritative, right? A king's word is authoritative. You're going to do what a monarch or a dictator, someone who's ruling on a throne says, because he has the power of his throne's authority backing what he says. And again, that, just a beautiful statement. The voice of the Lord is powerful. And I don't know about you. I hope you have experienced times where God has spoken and man is powerful. When, when you really hear the Lord speak something to you, whether he's getting your attention to rebuke you about something or correct you about something or maybe just to give a promise or a word of encouragement, it's a powerful thing when you get to hear the voice of the Lord communicate something to you. And it could be just that still, small voice, just that still, small voice. God speaks in the language of the heart. That's the language I'm convinced he speaks. He knows the language of your heart and he knows the language of my heart. And he knows how in a powerful way to let his voice be heard as he communicates things to our hearts through the different ways he does. Notice now he illustrates again, verse five, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Remember the cedars of Lebanon? They were the trees in that day that were these massive, renowned trees for their height and their size and their strength or whatever. So he's speaking of these huge, massive trees. And he says, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars and splinters the cedars of Lebanon and makes them skip like a calf, like a young wild ox. So again, he speaks of God's voice. God simply speaks and boom, he breaks apart. He splits these strong, mighty, powerful cedars of Lebanon that seem so immovable. But notice God can speak. And when God speaks, because his voice is powerful, God can, can bring a breaking. And God can bring a, a breakthrough. God could break through those cedars of Lebanon. And look, Think about yourself. Is it not true? I mean, think maybe how stubborn you were at a point in your life or where you were. And, and, and God knew what it took to speak into your heart in the language of your heart to make a breakthrough, right? To, to break your heart, to break through, to shine light in the midst of your dark, crazy, stubborn way that you were living or the blindness and like the breaking of, of just just cracking open. God has a way. The Bible says that his word is like a hammer that breaks through rock, right? And again, what is the voice of the Lord? Well, you could very easily say it's synonymous with what? The word of God. This is the voice of the Lord, is it not? 
This is so anything of the voice of the Lord in the sense if you think of the the hearing of God's voice. Well, this is one of the clearest ways you hear the voice of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and even God's word at times, right? It can have such a powerful effect. It, it can bring breakthroughs into our lives. You know, you hear a scripture, or you read a scripture, or you hear a teaching, and it's like, man, this powerful breakthrough comes from the Lord sometimes. And I just want to say in light of that, be encouraged. And this is why, listen, this is why you pray for people that you're concerned about or you want to see God do something. You just pray that God will speak to them. Because the voice of the Lord is powerful, right? We, we try and say it 75 different ways. We hope some, Lord, just, Lord, speak to them. Speak to them by your power. Bring a breakthrough. Because when God talks to somebody, lives get revolutionized that way. I mean, think about in the Gospels how Jesus w- would walk by somebody like Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he would, he, what would he do? He would just say two words. He would just say, follow me. Wait a minute, Jesus, you didn't share the four spiritual laws. All Jesus had to say, follow me. And these people would get up, they'd leave everything behind. Their entire life in an instant, they would just give up everything they were doing, everything as it had been, and they'd have a complete transformational life change because they heard the voice of the Lord. They heard Jesus speak to them. So certainly one of the most valuable ways we can pray is to remember what this psalm declares and to ask that the Lord would speak to people. He says, verse seven, the voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. Again, who's gonna stick their hand into flames of fire? And what's one of the things that fire does? It, it, it illuminates, it gives a tremendous amount of light. Some translations say that you know, the voice of the Lord is like thunderbolts you know, illuminating the sky at night or whatever. But again, this is the same implication that God's voice, which is powerful when he speaks, it not only brings breakthroughs, but it also, a lot of times, causes tremendous illumination, like what fire does in the midst of darkness or the thunderbolt that comes raging through the dark sky. God's word and God's voice can illuminate with tremendous power. All of a sudden, God speaks, and it's like, whoa, that's so clear now, so obvious. And God is a way of kind of just driving a point home or opening our eyes to see something by illuminating something that maybe we were in the darkness about at one point. Verse 80 says, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. So there he speaks of how God's voice has the ability to cause that deer to actually come to the place of delivery, that pregnant deer, God determines. He speaks the given moment that he wants that deer to be able to give birth. He determines that. So again, the the giving of birth is what? It's the start of life. So there the picture is. David says God's voice can make the start of something. He can call something to begin. He can call something to start that has not yet. He can bring it to pass. And he can also speak in a way where he strips the forest bare. What's the picture there? Bringing an end to something, right? Stripping the forest bare like a storm ripping through where everything is just completely put to an end in the forest. So he says, God can speak in a way by his power where he can speak with his power and he can call something to begin and he can speak it into existence. Isn't that what Genesis tells us? In the very beginning creation, God would just speak and, and light would come to pass and the waters and God spoke things into existence. He has the ability to do that, to begin things by his speaking, his, his power of what he wants in his will. And he also has the power 
to look at something, if it's not what he wants or it's not what he intends or something that he wants to bring an end to, and God can speak and strip it all away. And in one word, God can say, done with that. And he can bring an end to stuff. And again, I'm very thankful for this because I appreciate both sides of that, that if God wants to declare something to come to pass, he can declare it to come to pass. By the same token, God can speak in a way in something that we're thinking, man, that really needs to end. But I don't want to light the forest fire there. God, would you just speak and speak an end to it? And God can do that. And God can bring an end to something if that's what he determines to do. Because again, the voice of the Lord is powerful. And notice the response. He says, and when these things happen, all those in his temple, that is his people, everyone says glory. The idea is responding. The picture there is being astonished at God. Glory. And I think sometimes God works in a way that he does once in a while because it's just a good thing for our hearts once in a while just to be left astonished, right? Like those disciples in the storm. When Jesus would do what he would do and he would speak, they would be there dripping wet. And what were they? They were astonished. They they were just, you know, shocked. And I think sometimes that's a good thing. The Bible says just to stand in all of God. Sometimes it does our hearts good to have those kind of experiences. Verse 10 says, the Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and again, notice it's not at a flood, at the flood. Speaking of the flood of Noah, when God brought the the powerful cataclysmic judgment upon the earth, and the Lord sits as king forever. So again, when, when that was happening and judgment was coming to pass, he says God was sitting enthroned during those things. He was in complete control. When humanity was spiraling out of control, right? And that's what led to the, to the flood in Noah's day, remember. It says that, that the, the hearts of men were only evil continually. People were becoming perverse. There was an explosion of perverseness and sexuality, homosexuality, just complete. No moral restraint anymore. People were becoming brutal and belligerent and just out of control, violent. That's what it was like. And, and Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus said, one of the ways you'll know that the coming of the Son of Man is on the horizon is the world will begin to look characteristically like it was looking in the days of Noah. Those same characterizing marks. And he says, even when the world was spiraling downward and falling apart, the Lord sat enthroned. He sat as the king forever because he's in complete control. No matter what man does, it's never going to in any way hinder the ultimate purposes of God to bring about his will because he's a a mighty king. No revolt of humanity is going to stop what God wants ultimately. Verse 11, he concludes by saying, and again, I almost wonder if David was saying these things as he was witnessing a storm. Maybe he was watching a strong thunderstorm and just going, wow, the power of that is like the power of God's voice. Maybe he's watching thunderbolts and seeing a, a, a wild storm, making him picture this in his mind of the power of God's voice. And when we go through storms, you know, what do we long for? Storms beat us up and they wear us out and they tear us down, right? And it's interesting. David ends this psalm by saying, The Lord, in the midst of the storm, the Lord will give strength to his people and the Lord will bless his people with peace. So when we go through stormy times and difficult things and whatever it may be, he says the Lord can give strength to his people. And maybe tonight you need the Lord's strength to navigate what you're going through. Maybe you're weary or worn down. Well, the Lord can give strength. And he says, verse 11, the ultimate goal of God, even when he takes us through the storms, he never brings us through a a storm 
to destroy us, to ruin us. Right? Don't ever get the intention in your mind. A lot of times we think of tornadoes and hurricanes and storms, and the end result of those storms right, is usually like devastation and destruction. Houses are ruined. People lose property. And so sometimes I think when we consider God allowing us to go through a storm, we think that God has some destructive purpose in it. When the reality is, is, is a lot of times God has a constructive purpose when we go through storms, right? Because w- when we go through storms, it could be a storm of correction. That was Jonah's situation, right? God told him, this is what I'm calling you to do, Jonah. I want you to do this. I want you to go that way. Jonah didn't like God's call. I don't know if I want to do that. That seems risky. There could be personal endangerment to me. I don't, and, and I don't even like those people. I don't even want to do that. And, and he tried to rebel against God's call. And so what did God do? God just sent a storm of correction to redirect Noah and he, we can do this the easy way or the hard way and God just sent a storm wrecked his plans and put him right back on the path that he was supposed to be on anyway and it was a storm of correction and God you know did that really ultimately for Jonah's benefit in the New Testament when the disciples go through storms a lot of those times were they were storms of perfection to strengthen their faith and to make more perfect and strong their ability to see Jesus because in the midst of the storms Remember, they'd wake Jesus up. Don't you care that we're drowning? What are you doing? We're perishing. And then Jesus would show them his glory or his greatness in some way. And afterwards, what would happen? Their strength in their faith in Christ was much stronger. Again, never intended to bring harm or ruin. The Lord ultimately wants what's best for us in the end. And I think, no doubt, as David says here on the back side of the storm, he says, the Lord will bless his people. But notice what he says, verse 11, he will bless his people how? Man, I want God to bless me. I want God to bless me. He says he will bless his people with peace. Peace. It doesn't necessarily say prosperity and say that God won't bless in those ways. God can bless in any way he wants to. But you know one of the best blessings in the world God brings is? Peace. Right? Is that one of the greatest yearnings inside of every human being? Lord, even if you're going to leave me in a storm. Just speak over the storm and say, peace, be still. Lord, if you can just bless me with peace, just peace of mind, peace in my soul. Look, there are people who are in the midst of horrible storms and God doesn't take them out of the storm. They get cancer and they pray and God doesn't take the cancer away and they navigate through stage two, stage three, stage four of cancer and sometimes to terminal cancer. But you know what the Lord may choose to do in the matter? He can bless them with peace and he can give them peace. In their soul, peace in their mind, so they can navigate it gracefully and peacefully, and they can finish well. The Lord may not take away some storm that we're in, maybe because we made some bad choices, or maybe a storm that we're in because of just, you know, unfortunate circumstances that happen, but he can give us peace in the midst of the storm. And boy, is that not one of the most precious, valuable resources, right? For God to bless us with his peace. Well, let's stand together.